Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Dr. Mary Ott, who is our first postdoctoral fellow uh, guest in, in, the, in, this, in this podcast. And we're hoping to get some perspective about what is life as a postdoc before kind of in the transition between being a PhD and then moving into hopefully a faculty position at some point. So welcome to the show, uh, Mary. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. But just to start, um, I just wanted to pick your brain into, and you and I have worked together because you're a postdoc at the, at the center where I'm, I'm part of, but I don't think I have heard your story about how was your arrival into medical education? Because you did a PhD in curriculum studies in the Faculty of Education, and then you decided to make the move to medical education research. What's the story behind? I know. I, I think that, like, there's always a story to everything, and in every story there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a couple of problems that have led me down this path. Um, broadly, though, my research in med ed focuses on curriculum design and formative pedagogy. Um, and on a surface level, that can make sense because my PhD is in curriculum studies and my doctoral research explored pedagogies of formative assessment. So like on paper, it sounds, it makes sense, but that doesn't tell you about why I care about these issues, why I care about medical education specifically, um, how my experiences shape how I conceptualize the problems to study in the field. Um, so my partner and I were married before he started medical school. And now he's a medical education leader himself. So I, I tell people that I have my own lived experience as a partner of the good, the bad and the ugly <laughs> of medical <laughs> education. And therefore I also have a, a, a real vested interest in making it better, making the best out of workplace learning for teachers as well as learners. Um, and because I was an elementary teacher in a past life, I have some strong opinions about teaching and learning and how to improve them. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit, like I'll just give you a bit of my background as a teacher, um, because that's also a lived experience. So my very first job in teaching was in a tutoring center that used curricula based on mastery learning principles, actually with adult learners who were retraining. And so I know what it feels like to be in a curriculum based on classic behaviorism and it doesn't feel good. It makes yeah. you feel pretty much like a mat, a rat, I should say, in a maze, like a really stimulus response version of teaching and assessment. Um, and then as an elementary teacher, I was uh, required to teach a curriculum in Ontario that was based on a, a lot of really specific learning outcomes, um, which is based on basically the same principle as CBME. And so I, again, I have this lived experience of what that feels like. And it's not quite the same thing as classic behaviorism, but a competency-based curriculum can feel a bit piecemeal and feel a bit like jumping through hoops until you get a sense of the bigger picture of what you're trying to achieve. So it's really important for teachers to get that bigger picture sense. And then I was also working as a special education resource teacher for a good chunk of my career. And so, of course, that involved a lot of specialized assessment using standardized instruments. And so through that experience, I, I became more aware of the ways that assessment can put blinders on us as teachers and kind of work to improve learning in some really narrow ways. And that, that can lead us to see learners in a deficit kind of mindset. Um, so in elementary education, for example, there's a really necessary focus on helping students learn to read. So I spent most of my career trying to help 
young children, you know, learn how to be better readers. Um, but I realized that that can miss opportunities to help them express their understanding orally and visually with a hyper focus on one kind of literacy, you miss all these other opportunities to communicate. And I actually learned, I guess this is the special education teacher in me, but I began to realize that I had a deficit as a visual learner. So I think a lot of teachers are really good at being readers and writers. And I actually came to see that I was actually behind a lot of my students in using visual in information. And so that was actually the impetus for my graduate research. It was exploring how I could use video as a way of improving my ability to see students' strengths in learning and to use it for review and performative assessment with teachers. So that was a lot of my master's and doctoral work right, right there, wrapped up in that. And um, I guess the other thing in terms of my research interests in medical education, how I got involved in thinking about things in a socio-material perspective is because of my PhD supervisor. Um, she's the director of a center for curriculum as a social practice, but she was beginning to explore how um, new materialisms could impact the way that we see curriculum. And so that was a that became a threshold concept for me, which I describe as a, a paradigmatic way of thinking about the world. It changes how you you see the world, how you think and you act in it. Um, but going through that threshold can be really messy, hard work. So it took me all of my doctoral journey to kind of <laughs> see the, the forest for the trees in that perspective. But it really did change how I view education now, the practice of education, because um, I see it in a so this constant kind of state of coming together and pulling apart and all these different social material actors that that have agency in positioning how teachers and learners are in relationship with one another in relationship with curriculum materials um, and and just how that impacts the learning situation so I, I you know both in my own teaching and in my research um, what I pay attention to is the ways that materials and technologies and spatial arrangements and time schedules and things like that all position teachers and learners to act in certain ways. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, picking on, on your idea about the relationships, it's always or usually uh, the topics that we choose for our research programs come from personal experiences. In your case, realizing all this piece about visual learning, but also from our relationships at home or socially. And one thing that I, I always uh, impacted me about you is that you came to do a PhD after you were successful in your own career. And I was wondering, like, what did the children, your children, think about that? And also, on top of that, what is life with a surgeon now that you are in the medical education research field? Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because... I couldn't do this without the support of my family. Um, going into to research, kind of giving up um, a, a quite financially rewarding career in teaching, like that's a significant sacrifice for our family, um, despite the fact that I am married to a surgeon. And so it was also uh, just a total program of relearning and constantly learning, right? Because in, you know, in research, you just, you have to be dedicated to constantly being on the edge of yourself. <laughs> in terms of what you know and don't know. So um, it really pushes you out of your comfort zone in, in every kind of way. Um, and my family had to adjust. They had to adjust to a mom who is distracting a lot of the time, um, stuck in her head, lost in thought, um, 
when I'm writing, um, they, they know that it's painful to distract me from that. <laughs> but um, we've, we've all learned to work around it. And, and I think um, I have, I have daughters, I have two daughters, They're, one's in high school and one's just begun university. And so um, I think it's been really valuable for them to see um, their, their mother like continuing to push herself, continuing to work and to see um, their father supporting their mom in doing that. So, um, you know, we've been on a bit of a feminist journey as well. <laughs> <laughs> in this process but um then to answer your question about about working in the same field I think that comes with pros and cons to everything right, right? like there's a certain level of partnership in the um research questions that I'm exploring now that align with my husband's work but um you d you want to be careful about some of those boundaries too and like i said i i do have a, a real lived experience invested interest that sometimes can cross the line uh, you know that line between um being too biased i think <laughs> like i i don't believe that you can approach research in a purely objective way um i believe that we're entangled with with the research that we do in all kinds of ways. And we have to be critical about that. But in terms of, I think the ethics of knowing some of the people that I research with um, and for in social contexts as well as research contexts and kind of keeping my, this, this is information and knowledge that I need to keep separate and keep out of research because it wasn't given, it wasn't gifted to me through research. It was a gift through another kind of relationship, if that makes sense. So I have to kind of disentangle some of those relationships. And that's the complication of working with your partner, I think. Okay, so I'm curious to know a little bit about uh, your passion for, because I know part of your work right now uh, as a postdoc is in understanding certain elements of assessment. and. Uh, your background in curriculum studies as well. Where does that passion come from, especially in the field of surgery? What is it about surgery that drives you to, to be so into understanding better ways of assessing and teaching? So I think it comes down to both um, just being curious myself when uh, my partner comes home and tells me stories about his problems of practice, um, trying to be a better surgical teacher, being a, a program director and um, trying to improve teaching and learning practices in, in his program. Um, that just is endlessly interesting to me as a teacher myself. It's just a, a way that we can um, kind of have a shared shared interest in it, in the subject. And then because, um, as I alluded to earlier, I, I have this kind of lived understanding of the ways that assessment can drive instruction in ways that are unintended, um, especially when we get into thinking about assessment as metrics, which I really see as, um, you know, a problem that I want to engage with in medical education, because I think that gets in the way of some of the more intended effects in terms of, of um, learning and, and adapting to be a lifelong master adaptive learner. I think that, you know, set assessment metrics can get in the way of that. And so um, I'm really interested in how um, 
as a teacher, you have you develop a formative pedagogy, which is a way of approaching your teaching and assessment so that they're working together, they're aligned in your pedagogy, and they're in support of student learning, and that you're working on next steps, not just for your learner, but for yourself as a teacher. That's what I mean by formative pedagogy. So um, that's what I've explored in my doctoral research. And I feel like that is something of added value that I can bring to surgical education and really more broadly medical education. But again, it's that, it's that personal connection to problems of practice that um, has sort of led me initially into surgical education. Right. And you started to explore these, uh, these ideas as a postdoctoral fellow. How, what has been one of the major biggest challenges that you have experienced so far as a postdoc? Um, so I think the biggest challenge for me has actually been um, getting ethics to do practice-based research. And it's not something that's like new to, to just, you know, just happened as a result of me entering medical education. It's actually been um, something that I've dealt with all the way along in my research because the thread, the through line of all the research that I do in any context is it's about improving practice. Um, so um, getting approval for that has been a challenge because um, for me as a teacher, I, I just see it as a natural outgrowth of your professional um, responsibilities to improve your teaching and improve student learning. Um, you have to be engaged in research to do that. You have to be constantly researching your practice. Um, teaching is, is a profession of reflective practice. Um, so trying to explain that though to ethics boards that um, say that they align with qualitative research but don't really understand the implications for how um, how research into practice emerges through relationships and it's emergent and it's unpredictable. So that's what I mean about alignment. There's, um, there is a profession of, you know, we support qualitative research, but it, when it comes right down to the grounds of actually this research is going to be messy and unpredictable, that's really hard <laughs> to explain to an ethics committee. And I, I have managed to do it, but in each case, it's a process of justification that, that takes time and um, overcoming some obstacles. Um, but thankfully I did just get a project approved. Um, we're in the final stages of it to use video reflexive ethnography in um, operative learning. So I'm really excited about the potential for that. That's great. So now let's talk about the, the gratifying moments. So far, you've been in this postdoc, I guess, for less than a year, right? What has been one and maybe unexpected but gratifying moment of your experience as a postdoc? Um, so this is going to be a plug for Siri, but the the opportunities for collaboration and mentoring at Siri are really like world class. I just feel really grateful. I'm not just saying this because you're my postdoc supervisor. No, it's it's truly um, a privilege to to learn at Siri. And I've been involved for a long time, even before I was a postdoc, in coming to the weekly seminar series because listening to those conversations around the table um, is just like brain candy to me. It's so stimulating to hear people talking about their ideas and being okay to say, you know what, I don't really know. This is what I'm thinking about. Like, what do you think? what do you think about what I'm thinking about and having those, those conversations? I love that. Um, I think uh, 
going through the process of applying for multiple grants and, and receiving a couple of, you know, initial ones has been um, a really cool learning experience. And it's been exciting to be able to research, um, do a lot of interviews by Zoom and see that that's a way of really accelerating, I think, the research process. So even though the pandemic has presented so many disruptions and um, has even kind of changed the experience that I would normally have as a postdoc. Um, I actually always look for the silver lining. So I think a silver lining of the pandemic has actually been discovering that there are, are ways to, to do research that actually improve access to research participation, which is, I think, um, in terms of ethics, what we would all want to see. Perfect. So it seems that um, when you're a very reflective person from one side and the other side that you have had really good mentoring experiences yourself. And I was wondering if you can share one advice that somebody has told you in your career that is still, it remains in your head to this day. Well, my PhD supervisor um, would always say don't steal the struggle oh <laughs> and that's hard for me and she said she learned it the hard way too because i think as as elementary teachers in particular you're all about scaffolding learning and as a special education special education teacher as well um i was all about removing barriers to learning um and so i think it's been important for me to see that there's there's a certain amount of productive struggle that's just necessary. You kind of have to go through the hard slog to come out on the other side of something. So um, my advice from mentors is to, as a, as a scholar, to just understand that it's going to take time and be messy and uncertain. And then um, as, a, as a teacher also to create spaces that allow for risk-taking. That's something that I really work on in my, in my teaching now. Like how can I create conditions that will support that struggle so that it doesn't become an unproductive struggle? How can I provide enough supports to allow that messy work to happen um, and that risk-taking to happen? In going through that struggle, which I really like the idea, <laughs> give a space for, for struggling, um, did you find that you found yourself developing habits or skills that you were not anticipating in order to go through that struggle? Well, I'm not the most organized person <laughs> by nature. And so that's probably been one of my biggest struggles, but just learning strategies. And that's where being able to talk to various mentors about how they organize their work. You have to juggle so many balls um, in academia between your teaching, research, and service responsibilities. So um, that's the joy of it, I think, is all that variety. But staying on top of it for me has been a challenge. So um, just learning tips and tricks and strategies for scheduling my time, um, learning to manage resources, things like that. That's, you know, I'm still learning that. That is still an area of struggle for me. Right, oh, that's good. So you, you just recently told us that you are going to get ethics for, for, a, for a study. And my next question was going to be, what's your next curiosity? So I'm, I'm guessing that that's your next curiosity. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? And also if you have any other 
things in your head that are trained that you want to study at some point? Yeah, so this project in video reflexive ethnography is um, exploratory for me. Um, I want to see what kind of coaching conversations it induces. So we're going to do a combination of, we're going to um, not be doing the observation ourselves, which is different from normal approaches to VRE. Um, we're really making it practice-based and there's, there's this emerging kind of practice that's happening in, in surgical education at least, or anything to do with operative learning really, where um, teachers are bringing in iPads and their smartphones and things like that and recording bits and pieces of procedures and then reviewing them with the residents. And so what we wanna study is what are the learning opportunities afforded through those, um, those video reviews and how can we then help teachers to take that information back into their interoperative teaching. So kind of close that loop a little bit. And for me, uh, this goes back to my interest in formative pedagogy, you know, where I said it's not just about next steps for learners, it's about next steps for teachers. So I, I feel that's the next step in my research. And hopefully, you know, where I can push the, the conversation in MedEd is towards how do we use assessment data of any sort. I'm interested in multimodal data because it gives us so much more information, a richer picture of, of student learning. But how do we use that to improve our teaching? Because we know that when we improve our teaching, student learning improves. It's, it's that relationship. And I think if we're trying to constantly work on learners without working on ourselves, we're not going to get very far. Right. So good luck with that. It sounds like a fascinating area. We're almost close to, to ending the, the conversation today. Right. I have two more questions. One is because I, I mentioned at the beginning that you're our first guest as a postdoctoral fellow. How is life as a postdoc in general? I think it's um, it's different in the pandemic, right? Um, it's a little bit harder to be connected into all of the different networks that you would want to connect into because I think that's a big part of being a postdoc is to um, form stronger networks professionally. Um, conferences are virtual. <laughs> it's, you know, there's a virtuality to it that um, makes things, like I said, a little bit harder, but there's silver linings. I think um, the fact that we can meet so easily and readily um, means that I can meet with um, people in, you know, who are supervising me, mentors, research participants, um, and I really enjoy that. So um, especially when we're so physically distanced from each other, it's been really nice to have these kinds of virtual connections to, to kind of <laughs> add some joy to your day, add some connection and sense of purpose. Um, I don't know, were you, were you asking more about advice about for postdocs or just my experience of it? Own experience, because uh, one of the things that we wanna do in this podcast is not only the perspective of people who are scientists, but also graduate students at some point, postdoctoral fellows, like do all the kind of the whole spectrum of being in this community, being part of the community, and every person has their own experience. So it's more what, how it has been for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been good. I. I see it as an opportunity to 
be a bit of a sponge and take a bit of a break from teaching and really focus on developing a program of research. I think, you know, that's the value of a postdoc to afford you that time and space and mentorship to do that. So I really try to be that sponge and, and see the kinds of work that other people are doing and, and ask a lot of questions. You know, it's a lot of the behind the scenes questions that I, I didn't know to ask even <laughs> as a grad student and I'm realizing like are so important. Like, you know, what do you need to do to demonstrate research impact? How do you apply for a grant? How do you, how do you develop collaborations in, in research? Um, those kinds of behind the scenes questions that actually drive the ship, <laughs> but you, you don't necessarily see that as a graduate student. The well, chance to kind of get underneath the seams and, and figure out how things work. Very, very good point. And you made a very, very nice insight in there. Like it's, that's the transition between being a PhD student where you're so focused in getting it done and then realizing that there is more to just the actual doing of research. So yeah. I'm I said a lot to to people who would who would ask me, especially friends who are just finishing up their graduate studies. I'm like, what's it like? And I'm like, it's like the training wheels are off. <laughs> <laughs> it feels, um, especially at the beginning, um, very wobbly and and uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, knowing that you have mentors and that you know you can rely on them to help you rebalance yourself as needed. I think that's what I mean about checking in and, and, and having these opportunities for conversation because you really do need that. Right. Yeah. Well, my last question has nothing to do with research. I was hoping if you can share with us one thing that most people might not know about you as a person that might have shaped the researcher you are now or not something. Mm -hmm. Well, I've already shared some <laughs> intimate details of my family life. Um, I think I'm actually a, a person who really likes to listen. I would rather, I love a good story. So I love to just listen, hear people's stories, and then make connections between them. Um, I was a bookworm as a child. I read a ton. Um, and so I... I really have this sense of story in um, my teaching, in my research, in listening to other people's research participants. I'm always have an ear for the story. And then I think because of the, you know, my background in, in literature, I was an English major. I just, I'm able to kind of see the, the connections and the subtext and those kinds of things. Um, and I think that gives me an edge as a researcher, to be honest with you. Yeah, definitely. But thank you very much, Mary. It was really uh, nice to have a conversation with you about things that I don't even know being your supervisor, which is great to know. <laughs> it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. And to all our listeners, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today.